Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls from around the world, gather around. Today is May 11, 2020, and we are talking Consensus Distributed Day One Recap. That's right. It's uh, probably the biggest conference uh, in the blockchain crypto space, Bitcoin space, uh, every year, I would say for sure. Um, look forward to it every year. It's in New York. It happens uh, in May. And we pretty much own these 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 two weeks, last week and this week when it comes to news and everybody's paying attention. And usually it really makes a really big dent in, in, in the in the news as far as uh, just media coverage this year. Not not so much. I would say just a little bit, but not not completely. Right. Um, they're doing it the same way they did Ethereal Summit, where it's just uh, virtual uh, through through Zoom. And uh, I think I think consensus has done a pretty good job of kind of managing all that. There's a couple of hiccups today that I noticed, but for the most part, the amount of people that they that they had on board, uh, you know, for this this whole week, pretty much because it's going on from May 11th through the 15th. And it's just a record amount of speakers. Right. And uh, from all different sorts of backgrounds uh, in the space. Um, and uh, today we're going to talk about just day one. And, and this is going to be a really long episode. I think for the most part, day one was just very heavy on, on the on the beginning of the day and a little less towards the end of the day. But uh, there's a lot of news that came out, a lot of interesting insights as far as central bank digital currencies and how they're going to play. And um, definitely has got me excited as far as what to expect here for the rest of the year and into into the next 18 to 24 months. Uh, it's going to be fascinating how this kind of global financial system is going to play out. And I think after today, watching all the coverage that started at 6.30 a.m. And, and still going on now, actually. It's going to go on until actually a, whole, a full like 24 hours before they actually take a break. So, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous the amount of content that they're releasing. Um, but what I try to do is get the best of it, uh, distill it down to the highlights and the stuff that you need to know. And probably, the uh, you know, saving you a lot of time for sure, <laughs> having to dig in through everything. But... We're going to bring that to you right now. Day one recap of Consensus Distributed 2020. Let's do it. So at the very top, I want to I want to jump in and kind of give you kind of a broad understanding of, of what was talked about today at Consensus Distributed. And for the most part, at least from what I could gather, it felt like we had central banks, right, 
we had uh, we had that talk going on. We had uh, you know European Central Bank uh, Ives Mersch talking about central bank digital currencies and how they're going to affect uh, everybody globally. Um, you also had um, Bitcoin right enthusiasts talking about Bitcoin and how that's going to affect everything globally after the halving. Um, you also had uh, private. Uh, companies, right, that are looking to be the uh, distribution layer for uh, a, a lot more blockchains that are going to be coming out to support digital currencies. Uh, you also had uh, the Libra Association also talk about how they're working with the Digital Dollar Alliance uh, with trying to understand what they're doing. And and I'm realizing now, like, you're, you know, oh, oh and then I forgot to mention the Treasury Department. <laughs> so, after today, I quickly realized like this is an arms race. Like this, these are de- there's there's like a, a cold war. Uh, there's a cold currency war brewing right now, and there's all these different um, you know sectors competing with each other, trying to be the uh, the reserve currency or or try to make a substantial debt uh, to replace the reserve currency or even. You know, even not even doing that, but be, being big enough to, uh, you know, um, maybe uh, steal some of that uh, participation. Right. So it's it was fascinating to see all these different comments from all these different sectors. And there really there really is a Cold War. And I'm not just exaggerating here. There's really a Cold War of, of, of currency that's brewing. Um, and it's fascinating to hear all these different sides. So that's what was most talked about today. Uh, believe it or not. And and that was surprising because I, I, for some reason, I thought central banks were on the same size as, as the Treasury Department. <laughs> Call me crazy. Uh, but no, it's a little bit different. So first up, we have Ives Mersch. He's the uh, vice chair of supervisory board for the European Central Bank. And uh, take a listen to what he has to say about central bank digital currencies. We have uh, seen in recent surveys uh, that uh, around 80% of all central banks are uh, trying to use uh, central bank digital currencies and the European Central Bank is one of those uh, central banks that also work on digital currencies. It is not because uh, we want uh, to keep up with fashionable trends but because we have to be ready. Ready to embrace financial technological innovation, which has the potential to transform payments and money faster and in much more disruptive ways as ever before. Basically, we are tech neutral. We embrace the technology as it comes. But if our customers, that is the people of Europe, signaled, for example, a change in their behavior for making payments, then we would like to preserve the direct link that we have with them through the issuing of cash. And as the ultimate owner of our currency, we would like to maintain this direct link with our customers, the citizens of Europe. It is true that uh, today cash very often gets a bad press. But despite this, what we see, and this is hardwired facts, hardwired facts, 
show us that the demand is not receding. There are one or the other countries where you see a slightly lower use of cash in daily transactions, uh, but this is not widespread and certainly not the case for the aggregate euro area. The public at large is not willing to abandon the valued and trusted advantages of cash. But we are getting ready if things would change. One implication of financial technology, technological innovation could be in the future an increasingly cashless economy in which people may no longer be able to hold risk-free central bank money. Reliable access to money would then hinge on the stability and efficiency of private retail infrastructures. And trust in money itself would rely thereby also on trust in the intermediaries that will issue this private money. This is but one reason why central banks keep fully up to speed on financial technological developments. After all, providing safe money and a reliable and efficient means of payments have been an integral part of the mandate and of the core business of central banks since their very inception. And the ECB is no exception to this. So we should be looking ahead and consider whether in the future central banks would need to provide the public with some form of digital currency. While electronic payments are already crowding out the use of cash in some countries, but especially in countries where uh, the cash is less uh, popular and uh, where the national currency is considered as less attractive than an internationally used currency. In the euro area, there is no such trend away from cash. Some 76% of all transactions in the euro area are still carried out in cash, amounting to more than half of the total value of all payments. The demand for cash in the euro area continues currently, as I speak, to outstrip the rate of nominal GDP growth. In crisis times, the demand for cash even surges higher. The latest figure I have is those of mid-March this year. The weekly increase in the value of banknotes in circulation almost reached the historical peak of 19 billion. The ECB debate on central bank digital currency is therefore at the moment mainly an analytical one. Whether and when it becomes more of a policy debate 
will largely depend on the preferences of households. We are always willing to innovate in the form of money and payment services that we provide. If, for instance, people voice the preference tomorrow for, say, plastic or polymer banknotes rather than the traditional cotton paper ones, we would be happily accommodate them. But we don't see it. In the same vein, we closely follow technological developments and continuously reflect on the type of money and payments that are best suited for the needs of an increasingly digital economy. Yeah, so he he literally, you know, um, explained out, you know, why European Central Bank are looking into creating their own digital currency. Um, what's fascinating and something that he didn't mention was that we know it took China um, three to five years, right? Uh, and I think we, it's safe to say that uh, even if they are starting just now or even earlier this year or last year, um, it's going to be 2023, 2025-ish, you know, before they actually release anything. There's no way they're going to be able to, you know, knock something out here in the next 24 months. It's just not going to happen. Well, ever since ever since uh, one of the presidents of the central bank came out, I guess it was earlier this year, uh, talking about uh, in Wyoming, uh, talking about how they were looking at a central bank digital currency. But it, I almost kind of it almost kind of felt like you know COVID really spurred on a lot of these countries and then China as well too. And so I think even even if they wanted to release something like later this year or next year, they, they couldn't. At the earliest would be twenty twenty three, but. Um, that was one. That was one take that I thought was really fascinating. Was was coming from him, uh, and then it came down to the former Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers and uh, his conversation about uh, he sees as the biggest problem with uh, digital currencies, uh, at least in America. Check this out. Secretary Summers, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney last year proposed a new basket-based digital reserve currency to get the world off its dependence on dollars. What do you think of that idea? I think it's a long shot. Uh, I think it's a. I think it's a very long shot because I don't think there's the necessary political roots of consensus on how there would be global governance of uh, a major uh, currency. I don't think anybody's going to entrust that level of responsibility to uh, the IMF or to an institution like it, or certainly not to uh, the United Nations. And I think the experience is that uh, currencies are like uh, languages. Once they become established and established in having a global role, there tends to be a lot of uh, persistence just because of uh, the network uh, effect. So Mark could be right. He's certainly uh, visionary on this, uh, but I think Mark's other dream around uh, much more active finance around global climate change is likely to happen much sooner than uh, his bank core. I think it'll be a pretty substantial step if we got as far as the substantial growth in SDRs, special drawing rights of the IMF uh, that has been proposed. And I'd be surprised if we saw this uh, 
soon. In some ways, that means uh, less public competition uh, for private uh, digital currencies. So that's fascinating because uh, I've never, I mean, we were trying to think this out as far as like how that was going to look. Like maybe they do like some kind of reserve basket. And we even talked about it in previous podcasts. Like maybe the IMF comes up with their own currency. And he's just like, no, that's just not going to happen. I was like, wow. <laughs> to me, that was just profound. I was like, you know what? Geez, I was just totally throwing rocks in the wrong lake. <laughs> this He just took that off the table. So hearing him say that, at least get to one because one of the biggest worries I have these days is staying up at night and wondering like how this currency is going to just change. Right. Uh, It's one of my neurotic tendencies that I have to just, you know, wonder about these things. And so it's fascinating to hear him say that that's just off the table. Uh, One of the other things he touched on was this whole pandemic and and how the collapse is coming and how he sees the the Treasury and, and, and the Fed responding and what he thinks uh, is appropriate going forward. So take a, take a listen to his kind of comments on that. I don't think there was a viable option if we were to preserve a viable financial uh, system. This is one of three moments of existential threat after 1987, after 2008, 2009, and now this in the context of uh, the pandemic. I think it's important to recognize what's on the other side of the Fed balance sheet. This is not a case where they're issuing (laughs) pure money, which by definition has a zero interest rate. This is a case where they're issuing bank reserves for the most part, and those bank reserves will pay whatever interest rate the Fed sets. So in that sense, they have rather more the character of short-term government debt uh, than of uh, money. One would be a fool not to recognize uh, that the inflationary risks, given the magnitude of this dislocation, are greater than they were uh, three months ago. But at the same time, uh, there was a very famous letter written by a set of economists uh, to Chairman Bernanke in 2010, in which they explained that the uh, growth in the Fed balance sheet assured major inflation down the road. It's now pretty clear that that letter with respect to those events was wrong. And I think what about- the assurance that this growth in the balance sheet necessarily points to an inflationary uh, period um, would not be a uh, sensible uh, judgment. I don't think the market participants who have traded break-evens down or reduced the price of commodity prices, even forward commodity prices, have necessarily been irrational. Yeah, but, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's certainly a massive deflationary moment right now, and it seems that this is going to go on for quite some time. But I suppose the bigger thing is when you say down the road, is there at all any risk that the Fed's independence? I mean, this no choice but to do this. I, I agree. But um, is there any risk that the Fed's independence, as a result of having to take on all this private-related obligations, uh, is is at risk here? And what does that mean for its capacity to manage monetary policy in the future? I think you're going to see. Um, 
more blurring of the roles of the Treasury and the Fed. You're already seeing it in these joint facilities that are being operated where the Fed, where the Treasury is providing uh, the risk uh, capital. When you think about issues relating to financial stability as uh, central, when you think about bailout type activities as critical, inevitably there's going to be more overlap in the roles of monetary and fiscal uh, policy. So yes, I think uh, that the high point of central bank independence has been passed. On the other hand, I think there is a reading of uh, monetary history in which we had a major experience with unanchored money in the 1970s and a very broad social lesson uh, was learned. And so I, I think there will be closer relations between treasuries and central banks, but whether that points to a new inflationary era, I think that's more likely than I did uh, three months ago, but it's not something I'd be prepared to go out and predict. Yeah, so he was probably one of my favorite uh, talks today, was hearing him talk. Uh, he goes on for about a good 25 minutes. Uh, it's unfortunate, you know, we didn't have uh, even more time, uh, you know, to, to hear him talk. But, uh, yeah, he was fascinating. Uh, so many, like, knowledge bombs. He was just dropping on peasants <laughs> today because uh, these are the things that we, we think about. We just we just don't know the answers, you know, behind the scenes, how, how it kind of plays out. Uh, one of the other people that I thought had a really good take on all of this was David G.W. Burke. He's an author, advisor, and commentator on uh, on, on digital assets. And uh, he's uh, also um, has a really good take on central bank digital currencies. So take a listen to David as he talks about his kind of progression into trying to understand how this is uh, laid out for all of us when it comes to digital dollars and, and Bitcoin and everything like that. She does, so all, all central banks are looking at this, but of course they're not the only people that are looking at it. And for people who come more from the tech side, like myself, I think it was not a hard conclusion to come to that the decentralization of money would open up the possibility of more issuers. In fact, I wrote a book about that as well. So who those issuers might be, I'm not smart enough to know, but I know there's you know quite a lot of them. One category is central banks, but another category is private currencies. And because of Libra and Facebook, that's what sort of set me thinking down this path. But the conclusion I began to come to, uh, the more I looked at it, was that actually there are some other activities. I mean, Libra may well have been a catalyst to some of this thinking. I don't think it is in the case of China. I think they've been planning it for a long time. But you see things like the Chinese digital currency and Libra beginning to emerge. Now, as Naomi pointed out, up until quite recently, that was the preserve of you know techno-deterministic, you know, cyber lunatics like me, and actually many of your uh, attendees. But last year, when the governor of the Bank of England stood up and said, what we need is a SIC currency, you know, he said it's synthetic hegemonic currency, but I think SIC currency is better marketing. <laughs> he said, we need a SIC currency. <laughs> well, he's not just some guy like me saying it. That's the governor of the Bank of England. And so then you began to see people whose opinions I really respect. You know, Niall Ferguson, who wrote one of the best books about the history of money, the ascent of money, when people like that start saying, you know, the US has to take digital payments very seriously because there are issues of 
hegemony and by extension soft power, you, you begin to see some divergent opinions opening up. Larry himself last year said, you know, you know, right now the network we have, he, he meant SWIFT, the, the SWIFT network doesn't work as well as it should. You know, Larry would favor putting effort into that rather than building alternatives. Right. But when serious people like that start saying you have to pay attention, then you know something's going on. We, we kind of know that this these currency wars uh, were going to come, you know, to play this year. Um, but it, it's 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 interesting to see how it's still in this kind of cold war ish setting. Right. So I, I think as we go into the later part of this year, it will start ramping up, uh, especially if, if COVID is still a thing later in the year, which in all likelihood it will be. Uh, next person we have to talk about is Chris Giancarlo. He's uh, also known as Crypto Dad. <laughs> I think CoinDesk gave him that term. I think it's so stupid. Uh, but he's uh, he's in charge of the Digital Dollar Project. And we also have Dante Desparte of, of Libra Association. And they both were actually cordial with each other. They almost looked like they were going to be working with each other in a way. Uh, at least at least at least that's how it came off to me watching them. Um, but uh, you know they're both. You know, Dante is the vice chairman and head of policy and communications for Libra Association. And of course, Giancarlo used to be the CFTC uh, chairman. So um, they both know uh, a lot uh, going forward and what we can expect. And uh, they kind of touched on a few little things, not really some heavy hitting stuff. But I think the conversation between the two was probably the most fascinating thing from it. So uh, take a listen to that. Well, there's so many reasons. I mean, there's, there's, as you mentioned in your opening, uh, what the crisis has shown us is really the limitations of the traditional accounts-based, uh, analog fiat-based system as we're faced with the need to get uh, benefits to uh, needy uh, persons in the economy to keep the economy on uh, in neutral uh, rather than going into reverse while we wait to reopen. But we're also finding that just money itself is a virus transmitter and we need to deal with that. But there's been so many other issues that have been uncovered over the last few years, the cost and the slowness and the, and the friction involved in, in global remittances as well as international payments and wholesale payments as well. The dollar is um, a key part of, of infrastructure. It's a public good, um, but yet it also needs to be modernized. And as the world moves into the second stage of the internet, the internet of things of value, the dollar itself needs to be future-proof for that new era. And it needs to be digitized and made to be able to be programmable so we really feel that the time has come. As I said earlier, uh, the great uh, French writer, Victor Hugo said, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. We believe that the digital dollar is that powerful idea whose time has come. So Dante, to you, with corporate members like Facebook, Uber, Spotify, Coinbase, et cetera, Libra's model stands as something of a sea change from the sovereign tradition of currency issuance. But what can it offer that central banks can't do already? Well, if you think of the conversation and, and everything that Chris Giancarlo said, uh, Michael, um, it, it, I agree with. I think at the end of the day, you need this kind of public-private collaboration to enable, and particularly the last mile um, use cases, the user-directed peer-to-peer payment use cases can't happen um, at the type of scale that they need to happen if it's just singularly a public sector obligation. So I very much believe, and I think the association believes, that you can build digital commons and that those can be leveraged by public and private actors 
uh, to try to empower people. And, and the last point I would make to anybody expecting a vigorous debate between Chris and myself, um, they may be disappointed because I think the idea here is to really empower that public sector oversight of the financial system and the monetary system while at the same time empowering uh, consumers, citizens, and users to have user-directed payments. I don't think those those goals are at all in opposition with one another. Well, maybe, maybe I'll amplify, though, Dante's point. I mean, look, the Libra Project and the Digital Dollar Project are both addressing the same set of issues, and that is the antiquated nature of our accounts-based analog financial system as we go into a digital 21st century. Um, I, we tip our hat to, to Libra because it's because of the Libra project and Bitcoin that we're having this conversation today. And as a believer in the marketplace of ideas, which is the genesis of all innovation, of all scientific discovery, the marketplace of ideas is what's going to produce the future of money. And so we have a lot to learn from each other. Uh, there's different approaches, a bit serving different imperatives, but all addressing the same uh, uh, concern about the antiquated nature of the traditional bank-based account system that goes back several centuries um, and is really going to be challenged by this new wave of the uh, Internet of Things of Value. For sure. Now, Dante, you faced heavy pressure from regulators upon launch. And since then, you've sent strong signals of wanting to keep them happy. And you significantly changed your model and you hired a new CEO who used to work at the US uh, Treasury clamping down on illicit finance. So how can Libra or any currency innovator, for that matter, achieve financial inclusion or other such goals while these regulators continue to put barriers around you? That's a great question, Naomi, and and indeed we we are very lucky to have such an imminent leader coming in to run the association later over the summer in Stuart Levy, um, and someone who I think will demonstrate what we have been saying all along that financial inclusion and financial innovation and compliance and oversight are not in contest. And I think one one issue our entire sector needs to accept is there has been over the last eleven years a general lack of maturity around concepts of risk management compliance and all the rest. And so I think the Libra project overall and the ability to carry on a conversation with international stakeholders, whether it's the Financial Stability Board, the G7 Working Group on Stablecoins and many others, the more this asset class can gain regulatory certainty, the more we can unlock its true potential. And I think at stake is uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of economic activity. So it's as much about financial inclusion as it is about vigorous competition and innovation. We at the Digital Dollar Project have brought together an advisory board of privacy experts, national security experts, uh, uh, law enforcement experts, because we think it's critically important that a digital dollar have built into it as a design feature our Western values of an expectation of a degree of privacy in our use of money. Now, even with cash, let's be honest, there's a balancing between privacy rights and law enforcement rights right now, right? Under certain amounts, under $10,000, there's an expectation of privacy. Above that, there's not. For limited purposes, of government purposes of law enforcement and, um, and national security, not for purposes of monitoring where you're doing your shopping or who you're giving your political contributions to, but how, but where you're using your money that might violate uh, law and national security. So there's always a balancing in a free market economy, in a, in a democracy between the rights of the state to protect uh, itself and, and to protect uh, its laws and the rights of individuals 
to spend as they deem appropriate. And what we've got to get uh, right in designing uh, a digital dollar is that balance. If we get it right, and I believe we can get it right, uh, a U.S. digital dollar, we believe, could be a preferred uh, unit of sovereign currency. Uh, Caitlin rightly said that money goes where it's best treated, and I fully agree. And I think that we must make one of the design imperatives in designing a U.S. CBDC getting the privacy balance right. So people around the globe, there's, you know, there's always competition for use of currencies. If you look at history, more often than not, you had both sovereign currencies competing against each other, but also competing against commercial-driven currencies in the global world. It's the, the, the last several generation of the dollar's dominance and sovereign currencies dominance over commercial currencies is relatively unique in human history. But whatever the case may be, we believe that it's possible. In fact, we believe it is an imperative to get this balance of privacy rights right in a digital dollar so that the dollar is seen as, as a reserve currency of choice, not of, of, of forced usage, but of choice. Yeah, really fascinating conversation between those two. Um, I didn't know they were buddy-buddy, <laughs> uh, but it, it's clear to me, uh, at least now, uh, more more so today after hearing it and watching all this, it, it, it we're going to have ourselves a digital dollar that the government is is going to say that it's sovereign currency, right? Uh, and then I think uh, it's safe to say Libra is going to have their own, um, you know, digital dollar of some sort that's that's pegged us to some kind of a, 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 st- a stability of tons of currencies, right? Whatever they use. Um, and then, and then I would say you're going to have this open source, right? You're going to have Bitcoin, you're going to have Dai, you're going to have USDC. Uh, you're going to have t- tons of uh, cryptocurrencies that could be used uh, as well, too. I my hope is my hope is two things. My hope is that they don't try to thwart um, open source and, and they make sure that they include uh, all these other cryptocurrencies, uh, including Bitcoin. And they don't. And these wallets, these these digital wallets that that get created by either by Facebook or by your bank at Wells Fargo or by whoever makes these wallets where it has our identity tied to it, where it has uh, all our private information tied to it. Uh, where, uh, you know, because it's it's all likelihood. He says one thing, but if you know the government, you know, the United States government, they're going to monitor your digital wallet to a certain extent. Right. I think he I think uh, John Carlo tried saying, well, maybe if it's over ten thousand dollars, right, whatever, uh, you can just automatically assume that's going to get monitored. Um, and I think I think it's important to make sure that these open source projects like Bitcoin, like uh, Ethereum, and other cryptocurrencies don't get left out uh, from those digital wallets. It, it, I would say it's highly important that they make sure to include them uh, and, and give consumers the, the option to choose between those, between the three or the four, however many it's going to be. Um, but I think in the future, you're going to see a lot of this happen. And I think with these underlying protocols like Uniswap or uh, or, 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 or Kyber uh, Network, I think you're going to see you know, uh, people being able to swap these tokens interchangeably on on the fly, right? Like kind of like what we do now, if you go to Uniswap, you can swap uh, USDC for ETH and vice versa. You can be able to do that with the digital dollar or, or with the Libra token. And you're all gonna be able to do that from your digital wallet, right? And I, this future is starting to kind of take shape now as we're hearing everybody talk about this. Uh, I wish they would have asked some questions about the, the fact that um, you know, we have a trillion dollar, <laughs> trillions of dollars that have been printed out here as of late. And um, 
what's how is that going to get taken care of itself? Right. So it's, it was one thing I kind of wish, you know, Naomi uh, would have asked them like and, and asked them just said, hey, uh, if we do make this digital dollar, uh, we're still running up the debt the same way. Like, like, you know, just to get some more clarity on that. I'm sure that he probably would have answered that. But still, it would have been good to hear. Um, other than that, it was a great interview. Um, one of the other things uh, that came out today was Brian Brooks. He's the chief operating officer of the United States Office of Comptroller of the Currency. As you know, he used to be at um, at, at Coinbase, and he's the one person that actually kind of coordinated and uh, seeked out uh, to United States regulators about uh, creating this USDC for Coinbase. Um, so take a listen to what he says as he just kind of drops the bomb on everybody uh, regarding federal licensing framework for crypto firms. Check this out. Um, there are certain reasons why we have a national bank charter that allows a bank to operate in all 50 states without needing to get a bunch of different licenses. Kind of goes back to, you know, uh, Hamilton era, if you saw the musical, right? The, the, the notion was for the country to grow, <clears throat> we needed to have a strong financial footing and to be a strong economic country, we have to have the biggest possible market so we can't balkanize our economy state by state. You need a big national platform. There's a historical reason why um, states have certain kinds of licensing authorities and oversight authorities uh, versus the federal government. And crypto is one of those areas where we have to ask ourselves, does it make more sense to think of crypto exchanges and crypto projects as local projects or global projects? If they're global, then the rationale for a single national license uh, starts to make a lot more sense, right? And so one of the questions is over time, <clears throat> how do we conceive of what a crypto really is? Increasingly, I think there's an argument that crypto looks a lot like banking for the 21st century, right? There are stablecoin projects that have a lot of the look and feel of a deposit product. There are um, a number of tokens that look and feel a lot like a payments application. There are a number of things that look like remittance uh, projects and other things, all of which we, we understand historically to be part of the banking system. And so one of my missions at the OCC, which does have a strong innovation office, is to investigate the extent to which over time it makes sense to think of crypto companies like banks and to think about charter types that might be appropriate for crypto companies. Now, that's a, an ambitious objective and would require a big leap of innovation faith. Um, but again, I come back to the idea of things that are inherently borderless, um, like crypto, uh, uh, probably make sense in a license structure that is more broadly applicable than state money transmitter license. So he said two things there, right? So he said crypto is one of those areas where we have to ask ourselves, does it make more sense to think of crypto projects as local projects or global projects? If they're global, then the rationale for a single national license makes more sense. Now, this is fascinating because this this falls into to, into line what everybody was kind of anticipating, that there was going to be some kind of national crypto act uh, of this year, right, or next year, or however they're going to distribute that as far as uh, as a bill or, 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 or a regulation, right? And he said one other thing. He said this would give these startups an alternative to the state-level money transmitter licenses, when building operations. So that's almost like taking a right jab to New York <laughs> because we know how uh, how hard it is to get a bit license in New York, right? Uh, and so this would uh, this would allow these these uh, cryptocurrency companies and, and fintech firms 
to kind of uh, play uh, on a on a, a national level as opposed to a state level. And so completely fascinating. It really shows that Brian Brooks is on our side. Um, if there's one person that we have, you know, looking out for uh, crypto, it's it's likely Brian Brooks at the comptroller of the currency right now. Um, so fascinating, fascinating, jaw-dropping information that we got today just on that piece alone, which kind of puts everything that we heard before this on its head because uh, this will give uh, you know open source cryptocurrencies um, the opportunity to kind of compete now with the Libras and the digital dollar. It puts everybody on the same playing field now. Um, so that's really cool. And it gives opportunity to more people who wants to uh, you know, pursue that, they can now do that as well. So this is all the information that we had on central bank digital currencies, digital dollar, uh, how that's gonna incorporate in the future, the currency wars and, and all that jazz. Like this was the most information we got on, on all of that. And some of the stuff that we've been speculating for a long time, but just never had any actual information. And this is the actual information come to at a head. This is where we are now as a as a uh, as a global economy where we're headed. It's obvious now that we're headed towards, you know, open source projects, you know, for currency, uh, private companies for currency, uh, you know, a la Facebook or uh, national currencies like the digital dollar. So it, these 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 this is where we're headed, right? And then there's other, you know, countries that are going to do their own cryptocurrency. Um, so this is where we're headed as far as digital assets and how they're all going to play a part. And it's just going to be an arms race, <laughs> like straight up, like they're all going to compete. And eventually this actually makes things look a lot better for Bitcoin long term. <laughs> Surprisingly, like hearing because there's still some things about this digital dollar that they're not answering. And uh, hearing what uh, what uh, what Lawrence said earlier about like them not, you know, pegging anything to a basket of currencies uh, tells me that inflation is going to keep occurring. So, yes, it, it, it really, really puts Bitcoin at the forefront of all this. So this is all this is all great news, in my opinion. Like this is much better news than I could have even anticipated going into consensus on day one, which is awesome. Uh, OK, so the rest of the conference really had a lot to do with uh, some some projects like uh, like Zcash got uh Got made a, made an announcement today. They said that they're going to be looking at a handful of big names in crypto who want privacy features. So they announced that they're going to launch a Zcash Developers Alliance, uh, and they're going to work with uh, Lightning Network startup Bolt Labs to do cross chain technology. Uh, and they're, they're going to try to get bring you know privacy to Bitcoin, privacy to Cosmos and Ethereum. So that's really big news. Um, Vitalik Buterin said also that he thinks uh, Ethereum 2.0 protocol will, will be upgraded in July. I think so, yeah. And I think uh, Ethereum 2.0 has uh, test nets already. And so there is the Topaz that tested and the Shoise tested about a, a week ago that has uh, three or even four um, client implementations now. So that's the first phase of uh, ETH 2.0 that's bringing in proof of stake. And then sh and sharding coming soon after. There's also rollups that are adding scalability. Um, the Optimism team recently announced a demo with a synthetics where they're doing an optimistic rollup, and that can theoretically scale to over a thousand transactions a second, even on the existing Ethereum chain. So, 
there's a lot of work on scalability. There's also a lot of work on the cryptography and privacy that will make some of the kind of technology that I uh, just uh, talked about actually possible to implement um, on the uh, Ethereum public chain. So uh, it's it's moving forward on all fronts. Not sure why he didn't say that <laughs> here at Ethereal Summit two days ago, but he 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 let that he let that come out. Um, also, uh, Gavin Wood uh, of Polkadot, he made a good right jab at, um, at Ethereum today. And uh, he really kind of um, put his foot into uh, why Polkadot is far superior. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to put this in the podcast, but I think because we, we've done a, a Polkadot main topic show before, but I think, you know, you should probably listen to it just because because he's one of the co-founders of Ethereum, but his new project, Polkadot, has been in the works for like three to four years already at this point. Um, and it looks like they're finally going to get into, you know, rolling this out. And um, he goes into what Polkadot is, but he also goes into why other uh, blockchains suck pretty much, pretty much. He says it in the, in the, the most, uh, uh, you know, calm way you can say that. Uh, so I'm going to play that for you now, Gavin Wood on chain mergers and acquisitions. Take a listen. It's, it's a multi-chain and it's heterogeneous um, because each of these um, pockets of transaction processing logic um, don't specify the kind of fundamental kinds of transactions. Um, rather, they leave it entirely open-ended um, to, um, uh, uh, to the uh, uh, underlying uh, team or developer or project, or whatever. Um, this gives an unprecedented level of um, flexibility, much more so than um, the sort of um, uh, dynamic resource, uh, dynamic metered model that Ethereum gives, although Ethereum, of course, was um, uh, incredibly um, uh, uh, important at the time. Um, this allows um, for not just um, uh, the kind of smart contract model, although it does allow for that, but to be used, but also for uh, more fixed function pipelining, fixed function transaction processing to be done that can give much greater performance gains. Now, Polkadot also has an emphasis on governance and upgradability, two critical elements, I think, I think you sort of, I hope to convince you of um, uh, by uh, uh, later in this talk. So uh, Polkadot is really the first of its kind. It's a platform for creating trust-free systems, not unlike smart contract platforms, but it really aims to give um, uh, much um, uh, greater uh, technical guarantees, technical uh, facilities in terms of flexibility, performance, and uh, the underlying security. Um, it's, I think, not tremendously um, uh, unreasonable to compare the sort of uh, uh, transactions per second. Bitcoin here with realistically it's somewhere between two and four transactions a second. I put five because it can, it has managed to get up there. Uh, but realistically at the base level without any tricks, no lightning um, uh, network, no ZK snarks or start tricks or, you know, at its basic level of computational performance, um, which can obviously be increased uh, and improved uh, across all chains uh, by using these tricks. Uh, but at the base level performance, we're looking at around five transactions per second for Bitcoin and not very much programmable functionality, about 25 transactions per second for Ethereum, um, but obviously with much more program uh, programmable functionality, although the more you use it, the worse it becomes. Um, Kusama, um, about a thousand on its base chain transactions per second with the programmable functionality um, being much, much more um, um, uh, well, highly performant. Um, I mean, it's, this is 
the programmable functionality that we're looking at. This is using a, a WebAssembly base layer, which I'll go into in a second. Polkadot, because it has the parachains, and Kusama will eventually have parachains, but I'm sort of talking about Kusama right now. Polkadot, once it has the parachains, will be scaling up to maybe 100,000, um, up to maybe uh, a million uh, transactions per second. And I'll quickly talk about that. Um, how will it do that? 1,000 transactions per second on the parachain, 100 parachains, 100,000 transactions a second. 100 is probably quite conservative. We've done some design upgrades. Probably it's going to be, I think, it might get up to maybe even 200 uh, parachains. Um, and there's all sorts of further optimizations that we can do in terms of the database and I.O. Um, uh, storage layer, uh, the WebAssembly interpreter layer. This is all fundamentally um, um, on a, a meta-protocol platform, which means it's upgradable. Um, and also multi-threading, we do aim to, to bring in multi-threading to this, which will allow um, much better use of these sort of six, eight core um, 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 CPUs that we're seeing um, um, uh, increasingly um, prevalent. Polkadot is, is fundamentally upgradable, it's governable, unlike basically yeah, most of the chains. Um, there are one or two that could maybe make this claim as well, but uh, um, Polkadot does it in... Uh, 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 a little more style, I think. Um, it's a WebAssembly-based meta-protocol. This means that the logic of Polkadot is um, placed actually on the chain, on Polkadot. Polkadot hosts its own logic. It's a bit of a crazy idea, but there it is. And it's able to do this by using WebAssembly. WebAssembly effectively um, allows logic, allows the, the algorithm or the protocol to be described as data. Right, as, as instructions. And it's used for both the parachains, these, these shards, these uh, individual parallel transaction processing units, and the relay chain, so the, the, the thing that cooperates and coordinates between, that allows these guys to, to, to cooperate and coordinate, and gives them their security. Because we use a meta protocol, we have seamless upgrades that are controlled by the underlying logic of the consensus, the underlying um, logic of the chain. So the chain's logic can dictate what the chain's logic changes to, can dictate its own changes. In essence, it has control over its own destiny. What do we call this? Um, I think agency is a really good word, right? Agency is, um, is how we describe things that have control over their own destiny. Upgradeability and governability um, changes a chain from something that doesn't have agency um, to something that does. So what's a token? Let's, we need to um, sort of really dive into this, I think, in order to really understand how um, tokens are, uh, uh, or token economies, are able to interact with each other at a sovereign level. Um, now tokens uh, I've seen described, or token economies, I should say, it's kind of a, a funny dichotomy here, but token economies are described uh, in one of the three C's, three C's. Commodity, currency, or corporation. Commodity is kind of the dumbest. Uh, I, I, I think I think these three, the three C's, um, to pin a protocol on there, we have to. It, it, it depends on the protocol itself, the, the 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 fundamental protocol of the token, not any derivative protocols where token derivatives um, uh, might be live live uh, might live or be exchanged. Um, and I think it under you know understanding whether a token has agency is the critical um, sort of difference between the three. So at the top level, you've got commodity, dumb chains, right? No agency. Bitcoin um, sort of loudly, uh, or many of its adherents loudly um, uh, um, advertise Bitcoin as 
basically having no agency, right? It doesn't do anything beyond its stated uh, 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 original goals. Bitcoin is meant to be this kind of digital um, uh, um, um, uh, natural resource, right? Digital gold is, is often how it's been described. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it isn't managed, right? No one is going to take charge of Bitcoin and change its underlying economics. That's kind of its point. Um, currency uh, is, is uh, I think, where, where you've got something that's a bit more managed. It's maybe a little bit more like something that has a central bank behind it, where the central bankers can make decisions on uh, maybe uh, the inflation or, or other very limited characteristics of, its, uh, of the chain, uh, but still um, things uh, that are not fundamentally controlled by its logic. Corporation uh, is the final one, and this is re really where it has full agency to change itself, where it's an amorphous protocol. Um, and this is the sorts of thing that, that sort of great companies have, the ability to reinvent themselves. Um, Microsoft, uh, sort of, uh, at least as, as, you know, sort of software developer, um, uh, I've seen Microsoft kind of reinvent itself from the 90s where it's sitting on its cash cow of, uh, of, of Windows and, and Office and it's doing its best to stifle any competition um, into the sort of company that it is now that's much more forward-looking, much more um, uh, cooperative, and I think it's, it, it's a really nice transition. Um, Nokia as well, if you, if you sort of look at Nokia's history, it's reinvented itself countless times. Um, and it's this agency um, that allows it to do that. Um, now, if we look at models of uh, mergers and acquisitions um, uh, and, and how we might apply them to tokenomics, I think we've got kind of two rough models. Um, and I wouldn't really call one of them mergers and acquisitions. So the gold standard and even the ETH1 to ETH2 transition, uh, where uh, you, know, you do have two separate systems. Um, both of the, these two, I think, are derivatives. The USD being a derivative of gold, of course, uh, originally discontinued for, for many decades, but originally. And the ETH1 to ETH2 with ETH2, the ether of ETH2, a one-way peg. So it allows ETH1 to be burnt, to populate the ETH2 um, ec uh, economic economy, uh, but still, because it can't go back again, ETH1 doesn't recognize the ETH2 minting process. Really, these are not, these two are not mergers and acquisitions. They're derivatives, right? We want to understand purchases. And I think the Eurozone uh, change did actually allow us to see how that might happen um, uh, in terms of a currency, but only when you really do have a large degree of agency between the constituent powerful uh, controlling elements of these currencies. It needs a currency. It can't happen with a commodity. Um, why? Because there needs to be agency. It, we need a way of allowing an economy to act um, on its own behalf, act as a whole. Um, on behalf of its of its uh, various stakeholders and whatever, um, and if you don't have agency, then there's no way you can do this. In the same way that ETH one doesn't have agency over itself, right? So there's no way how ETH one could agree to some of the network's um, uh, 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 minting process, even if it's ETH two. Um, how do we how do we complete a merger? Well, it, it's it's. Uh, it, it's it's difficult. Uh, initially, you've got to sort of uh, agree to the terms of the merger, and this must obviously because chains are machine executed, they have to be machine readable terms, um, uh, indeed machine executable terms. Um, now, generally, this is probably going to be um, fixing a price. 
Beyond that is where it gets really technically difficult. Chains have to respect each other's tokens. So basically, if a chain, once two chains of uh, sovereign chains have agreed on their price, then these sovereign chains have to make themselves, in some sense, subservient to each other. They have to respect each other's token base. And more importantly, they have to inspect, uh, respect the logic that creates those tokens. If one chain has a bug in its token creation logic and somehow allows a validator um, to mint you know, tons and tons of tokens because of some overflow or some other thing, um, then it has to respect that. Like Fundamentally, it can't just sort of say, oh, you know, I'm ignoring you now um, on its own terms. Big problem. Um, in some sense, there has to be some shared um, idea of, of, of sovereignty that they, that they both respect. And finally, if they want to share their token, which I think they will do eventually, they, they will need to because um, having two separate tokens that just happens to have a fixed price doesn't really constitute a merger, right? Company merges, it doesn't just allow a share, shares to be, um, uh, uh, to be uh, uh, bought and sold at a particular fixed price. No, the company merges because it wants to make a single company with the best elements of both. Um, and that again requires some fundamental underlying shared security layer, shared layer of, 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 uh, of, of consensus that allow them to have a shared destiny. Polkadot facilitates this by being an underlying platform for blockchains that allow them to get um, their own uh, shared security, their own um, underlying consensus without restricting in any way what they can do um, in their own um, deterministic uh, logical uh, execution. And this uh, is what gives Polkadot its underlying value as a system. It allows sovereign chains to interact without prejudice in a trust-free fashion. He really goes really, you know, next level in depth on it. And uh, one of the things he didn't mention was Substrate. Um, as you know, this is this is everything that uh, Polkadot is uh, is uh, building on top of is this Substrate framework. So. It's going to be fascinating to see how this all kind of plays out. We, we've done a, a, a main topic on it. Uh, I think it was last year. Um, but these relay chains ultimately uh, will allow these multi-blockchains, or he's calling them parachains, uh, to, to kind of coexist. Uh, and even, you know, in, in a way, you could even have Ethereum, um, you know, utilize like a bridge chain or, or some sort. Uh, so... He takes a lot of jabs, uh, Ethereum, and I, I think um, he he looks at his uh, project as being the the king. <laughs> so it, it's but in, in reality, uh, one thing I've noticed about Ethereum, they don't care. Uh, they're they're going to keep building and uh, keep working, and uh, they're they're willing to work with anybody, as you see today with the announcement with Zcash, and even with um, with I think it was a. Uh, it's a Kyber network that is doing RAP BTC now, so they're even taking in BTC. Uh, so, like at the end of the day, Ethereum is going to work with whoever, uh, regardless if they're trying to infiltrate their market. There's there's really none of that kind of like, oh, I don't want to work with you because of this. Like they even embraced Libra. So that's what I'm trying to say. Like there really shouldn't be a need for this, like, um, you know, this kind of uh, um, my my project better than your project because at the end of the day. Ethereum's trying to work with everybody regardless of of what you're building. And and Substrate and, and Polkadot will, will definitely utilize Ethereum at some point. Because I think one thing that most people need to realize is that Ethereum has such a lead at this point that um, in order to get developers to, to start building on, on your platform, uh, you're going to need to pull some from Ethereum, right? Um, 
and that's just where they all exist right now. So uh, Polkadot could definitely, you know, come in here and 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 start allowing people to build on top of them. But at the same time, you're going to need to to work with this existing uh, ecosystem. And most developers these days are on Ethereum and Bitcoin primarily. Um, so you see, we see we can even see how how much trouble Tezos is having um, just to get developers. You know, so. Yeah, I think uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how that all plays out here in the coming and this next big major bull run. And uh, one last thing, we got to talk about Bitcoin, right? Because it it was halving day and uh, we're actually going to talk about that in in Thriller Rundown after this episode. But uh, we got to hear from Safdin Amus, right? And and Eric Voorhees, some some Bitcoin OGs talking about how central banking is is mucking everything up and (laughs) leaves uh, Bitcoin to kind of take the flag and run with it. So check it out. I think so. I think I mean it's uh, we we the the pretense of pretending that this is all um, independent, that this is all scientific, is really falling apart uh, as we see these crises pile up and we see these kind of emergency procedures and we see uh, you know we, we really making up uh, making it up as they go along is the only ideology or the only scientific basis for. So, so if it really is all psychological, what are the signals we're going to get from Bitcoin? Um, let's say having a stronger psychology, right? What makes Bitcoin stand out and, and how can it transcend and push through these limitations that you're describing? I think ultimately it's just the, the, the brutal realities of supply and demand. That we're always finding new ways of, central banks are always finding new ways of increasing the supply of their money and they're tasked by ensuring that there's no inflation. So they're constantly in trying their best to, sorry, there's no deflation. So they're constantly trying to their best to increase the money supply. And we see that happening all the time. However, with Bitcoin, we see the opposite. We see the supply declining. So I think just the brutal uh, realities of uh, the supply is not declining, but the new production is declining. So, you know, we're already made about 18, 90% of all the Bitcoins that have ever been produced are already produced. And the new production is just going to get smaller and smaller. And so Bitcoin's um, credibility as a store of value and as a, as a medium of exchange, as a form of money is continuing to increase because it operates without all of these uh, political oversight, because it operates without all of these um, uh, problems that central bankers have, which, you know, I think it's, it's, it's astonishing to think about it, that Bitcoin really um, does to central banking what the um, automated telephone does to uh, phone operators. It used to be that in order to make a phone call, you needed to have somebody plug a wire that connects to your house into a wire that connects to somebody else's house. Uh, and now we've figured out a way to obviously make it much more uh, productive by just turning it into automation. And I think this is ultimately what Bitcoin does. And as you know, as I think the the the, the interesting thing over the last few months is that as the world has fallen into crisis, um, you know all kind of risk assets liquidated and Bitcoin liquidated for a while and it lost a significant amount of value, but it wasn't outstanding volatility by Bitcoin standards, or maybe it was, but uh, Bitcoin's now recovered and it's still up on the year and it's still up on, um, um, you know, since the year's end, since the turn of the year and it's up. uh, And and following up on that question that I had about signs, would you take one of those signs as the broad-based retail buying around that dip as one of those things that you're looking at, that there was this sort of, uh, a lot of people believe this was temporary and just a few people shedding some risk? 
Could be. I think it's 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 still a little too early to start reading uh, signals from Bitcoin's uh, price to the broader market because just because Bitcoin is is, is so small at this point that uh, you know one uh, hedge fund deciding to allocate money into Bitcoin I think can have a significant impact on the price. Uh, but I think more important than any kind of specific trigger or any kind of specific uh, sign is just the continuous reliability. The fact that every 10 minutes there's a block, more or less, exactly as expected, and that the supply increases exactly by how much is expected, and that there's no politics. You know, we're, we're witnessing a once every four years uh, change to the monetary policy, and, you know, nobody is arguing about it. Nobody is discussing whether we should change things or the, this way or that way. And I think um, it, there might not be one kind of specific um, uh, incident that uh, brings the attention of the world. But I think slowly but surely, the, the drip continues to um, uh, turn into a, a stronger current because um, because of Bitcoin's just constant uh, nature. So this year, you know, there were some some Bitcoin panels. I'd say there are probably about three, three or four of them. But I think Safdine really put it in perspective there. And then, of course, Eric right here talking about uh, <laughs> about why giving money away is or is not a fix for the problem that we have now. Uh, it actually makes things worse. Uh, so take a listen to Eric as he talks about this. First, I, I'm not surprised by any of it. Uh, whenever people have problems these days, they tend to ask, beg, uh, desire the government to step in and solve those problems for them. Some of those problems can be solved by governments, some of them cannot be, and many think they can be solved, but actually end up making things worse. So um, certainly as the coronavirus has spread around the world, it's been a, a horrible human tragedy. And that, you know, tens of thousands of people dying and just completely awful. Um, many people I think will know someone who's, who's been uh, directly affected or, or has died from this. Um, and that's a serious problem, but but that will recede at some point. The, the virus will, will go away over time within a year. And what won't go away is the intervention and specifically the, the habit of intervention and the, the ways in which the government has further encroached into people's lives. Some of, some of them small, some of them big. That never recedes. That doesn't go away when the weather gets warmer or when a vaccine is found. There's no government vaccine that we can take next year. So what, what I'm really worried about isn't the, the short and medium term effects of the virus so much as the long term effects of uh, the further government intrusions, not just into the, uh, into the economy, but into people's um, social lives and behaviors. So in, in your perfect world where, let's say, people had all adopted crypto already, um, I guess, how would this situation be different um, than what we're seeing now? Well... There's no such thing as a perfect world. So as much as crypto, I think, would make the world better, it, it doesn't make it perfect. It still has plenty of problems. But a world in which people were using real money, and by real, I mean something that, that originated from a marketplace versus from a, from a government, um, it would be one in which a virus uh, could, not, could not change the long-term relationships of, uh, of economic actors. And so by that, I mean, uh, right now with fiat, when banks step in, when governments step in and change monetary policy in response, the economic interactions of people, uh, both 
right now and over the coming years will be drastically affected by that activity. Um, as as Safe Dian said earlier, it always feels good when you have the heroin shot, uh, but the effects of that are what are really, really problematic. So in a world where people were using real money, market-based money, um, the marketplace would be less influenced by uh, by governments who are quick to jump into complex systems that they don't understand well and cannot affect nearly as beneficially as they believe in. I mean, do you think that, well, I guess so in with Bitcoin or, you know, broader cryptocurrency, maybe, um, you know, the same could be sort of said is that we we have a system that maybe not all the actors who are able to make some sort of decisions understand how, you know, how nuanced and complicated the world is. Um, I guess what how would you respond to that? Well, with Bitcoin, it removes the ability of humans to change the monetary policy. And, and ultimately, that's good in the same way that we, we don't have the ability to affect mathematics when we get scared about a virus. We don't have the ability to affect uh, gravity or the, the changing of the seasons or how the planets orbit the sun. We don't have an ability to change any of that stuff when we get scared of a virus. And something as, as crucial as money, which is you know, the most important good in the society, is how humans interact day to day with each other. Um, that kind of thing should not be uh, within the purview of any small group of people to unilaterally change. Um, I think it will be very clear in the future, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years uh, in, in the future, that a, a group of central bankers deciding what the price of money should be will appear very, very foolish indeed. And um, in Bitcoin, that power is, is removed from people. And that's why ultimately it will be much more trustworthy over time and is why ultimately it will retain its value far better over time. So the economist Joshua Gans, who spoke at Consensus last year, has weighed in on the recent um, inflation risks in America. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. Certainly, three trillion, I guess it was, was printed, maybe more. Um, not even sure where we're at right now. No one is, I guess. A uh, bunch of trillions were printed. And we're rounding to the trillion now, which is crazy. Rounding to the trillion now. A lot of money was printed. Um, but what he said was look, in a, in a scenario like this, where things are already so imbalanced unnaturally, so demand was evaporated by everyone staying at home. And he said, this is the one circumstance where you can actually get away with printing money. It's free money because demand is so low, so you're not putting anything out of balance, right? So his theory was when you print money and demand stays the same, you're, you're out of balance. So now maybe he's right. I mean, this stuff is really complicated. I don't think any of us can really have that vantage point, understand how complex a lot of this stuff is. But let's say he is right this time. Let's say it was free money, demand was so low and was okay. In your worldview, in your predictions, do you see this becoming a habit of governments that now that the Pandora's box is open, we can start solving any one of our problems and perhaps that imbalance will, will, will find our way to that imbalance? Yeah, I mean, the, certainly the Pandora's box opened in the last crisis in 2008. That's when, when really this idea of print money and call it something like quantitative easing was... Um, was, was floated, was debated a lot back then, um, but ultimately they went ahead with it and the, the bad consequences of that haven't really appeared yet. So advocates of that kind of policy uh, can continue to advocate it. 
And so this time when, uh, when the crisis hit, there wasn't even any debate about whether people should print money, whether the government should print money or um, whether that would help anyone. Uh, all major economists, all politicians, everyone on Wall Street, um, and certainly much or most of the business community, all agreed that we should print money immediately. It was just a question of whether it's 500 billion or, or 2 trillion. And, and uh, ultimately they decided let's do both. Let's do two and a half, three or 4 trillion. Um, it's, it's just preposterous. You, printing money does not print wealth. It does not print wealth. It simply rearranges how wealth works in society. And what you're doing is you're essentially taking wealth from the future and you're giving it to people today. And of course, people today, when you print that money, will feel good about that. The damage is distributed over time and the damage can be very pernicious and very severe. And to that person who said that, I think he could make that argument if there was any plausible suggestion that the money would be destroyed after the crisis recedes. Uh, if the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve actually went back uh, to something normal after this, at least he could make that argument. I would still take other issues with it, but he could make that argument. But all of us know that the, Fed, the Fed's balance sheet will not return to anything normal. Indeed, it did not after the 2008 financial crisis. But don't forget, this right. is not a, they did not borrow money this time. They printed money. There is a difference, and it's important. Right. Right. Borrowing is more honest. Printing is just... Mm -hmm. <laughs> printing is just stealing. I mean, when you print when you print money, you are stealing purchasing power from all the people that hold money today and in in the future. It is just that pretty big pre mine. It's a big pre mine. <laughs> it's it's a pre mine um, which is not stated up front in the white paper. So it's it's more like a pre mine that can happen at any time, ongoing, with no one uh, clear on when it will occur or how big it will be. It's, it's but, just theft. Yeah, and the really, like, really sad thing about all this is not only <laughs> they call it a pre-mine, but not only that is, is that all that money is going to one conglomerate behemoth, and that's BlackRock, right? And so they're the company that gets to choose which uh, other companies live and die. And that's the ultimately the centralized actor at play here it's it's the fed working with blackrock and, and blackrock distributing all this uh all this printed money uh it's it's really sad that we live in this time um and it's really going to be painful for a lot of people that don't have a hard currency when this major collapse happens at some point here in the next 10 years um it's 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 a it's a it's a lot to, to think about and i, I think eric Voorhees really understands this uh not only from a, a bitcoin level but on a on a on a, on a just uh when he compared bitcoin to gravity <laughs> it was awesome <laughs> it was it was literally saying like and these are these are truths these are absolute truths that he's saying like you like gravity we can't change gravity <laughs> like so it was just a fascinating uh ending to to what i thought was a, a great first day uh from uh, consensus and it's really fascinating to me how CoinDesk puts this together. Is you still have your your Bitcoin panels, but you don't mix your Bitcoin panels with your <laughs> with your with your regulators or or the the people uh, like uh, Lawrence from the Treasury Department, like, like or previous Treasury Department. So you don't really mix those people, and I think it works best in, in, in that way. 
Um, but it's it's completely fascinating to hear all these discussions today. I was I was in heaven for most of the day listening to this stuff. Um, so at some point I had to stop because it continues on. It's still going on right now. It, it's um, so. Tomorrow, what we're going to do is we're going to do another day two of consensus. We're going to cover it the same way. And um, later this week, there's going to be day three, day four and day five. Most most times, as we've seen in the past, days three, days four, days five are a lot slower. Not much news coming out. So you'll probably see three, four and five all condensed into one episode just because there's there's not a lot of content. I mean, if there is, we'll we'll post it as its own episode. But day two, we'll cover that tomorrow and that'll be its own episode for um, for consensus distributed 2020. And um, I think I think that's all I got. Okay. Yeah, such a fascinating weekend in, in, in Bitcoin, right? We, we saw the drawdown, right, from when we were at 10.4 or something like that. And then it fell back down to just under 8 and then climbed back up to 9.4. And then today we saw it drop down again. And, and, and so all this was going on with the halving and then with Paul Tudor Jones. And we're going to talk about all of that here through the rundown because uh, we haven't even touched any of the other stuff that's going on in the space. That's really big news. Uh, so, yeah, just an excellent weekend and, and, and last week and this week in, into Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, what a time to be alive in the space. Uh, so stay tuned for Through the Rundown coming up here next. And tomorrow we're going to do day two recap of Consensus Distributed 2020. And that's because we didn't even cover all the projects that were here in Consensus Distributed 2020 for day one. But uh, we, we did the best to get the best highlights for all of y'all. So uh, stay tuned to our coverage of Consensus Distributed 2020 all week long. And we try to bring you all the news. All right. See you next time.